It's been a few years since I've been climbing, uh, although I did dust off the old harness and rope the other day. This is my uh, pesto, petzel, not pesto. That that would be something you eat. Preferably, you make it yourself. If you buy it in the store, it tends to be a little uh, saltier than you want it to be. But you make it yourself, you can dial it right in. Okay, so the snow on the roof, right? Okay, like piled up, and then it melts, and then then you have water coming in the building because it's a shingled roof in in places where you don't want water coming in the building, and so you have to figure out a way. And and like, like... pushing the snow off the front of the building, so the west side of the building. If, if you slip and fall and slide off that side, not much of a consequence. Just kind of a fun ride. But you fall off the east side of the building, the consequence is a little higher, okay? And if you stand on ice without crampons, um, you are uh, inviting yourself uh, to slide all the way to HCMC or, or, or North Memorial with head and body trauma. So I got the old Petzl out. This is a good friend. We've been to a lot of different places, okay? And then I, you know, I put it around, and then I you know, figure eight, and now I can self-belay myself. So not only do I get to flex a little bit for a Sunday morning illustration, but I get to self-rescue in the event that I slip and fall. The first time I went climbing outside, Shovel Point, North Shore, a climb called Rise Over Run. It's not a hard climb. It's a very easy climb, 5.7 on the, the Yosemite system. I asked because I wasn't sure, right? What if there's not a handhold? What? What? What if I get down there and I can't get back up? Which was betraying both my ignorance and my lack of experience when it came to climbing. What I discovered about climbing is is sometimes the hardest thing to do is to move from a strong position to a better spot. Be hanging out on the side of a cliff, you got a nice little ledge to stand on, you're like, man, I could stand here literally all day long. And, And you probably could, okay? You probably could. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is move from a strong position to a better spot, i.e. the top of the climb. Sometimes the easiest thing to do is to move from a bad spot to a better situation. Okay, if it's desperate and you don't like where you're standing, you're like, no, I want to find, I want to find better traction. And sometimes if it's so desperate, the seemingly impossible thing to do is move from a bad situation to a strong position, as odd as that might sound. Sometimes the hardest thing to do is to move from a strong position to a better spot. Sometimes the easiest thing to do is to move from a bad spot to a better situation. Sometimes the seemingly impossible thing to do is to move from a bad situation to a strong position. Are we aware of the presence of God? Do we pay attention enough? Have we developed the ability to see God? So in tune to what is going on around us that we instantly see God, both in the good and the bad, See where God is working. See what God is doing. See how God is influencing and by extension where God isn't working. What God is not doing. 
how God is not influencing? And can we develop the ability to see God at work in our lives? Page 1008, verse 23, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, when he was born, by faith, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful. The reason why I admit Moses' name is for sure Moses gets a name, but when he's born, he doesn't get a name, which is intriguing. And it's not a chalk that a parent would find their child beautiful. Oh, he has your eyes, my hairline. I don't even know if that works because, like, we get our hair from our mothers, right? Acts 7.12, Stephen talks about Moses. Exodus chapters 1 through 14 talk about Moses. And this idea of beauty isn't the idea that a parent would find their child beautiful. It's the idea that, that there's something special about this kid. Like, right out of the gate. Not totally sure, but that, that sense, that feeling, that something inside. The story covers an insidious plot by Pharaoh to wage genocide against the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I don't know if you know the story. Pharaoh was fed up with the children of Israel. Jacob's name becomes Israel, Israel's 12 sons. They reproduce, they become numerous. And so he orders to get back at them. He orders that their firstborn sons be killed, thrown into the Nile. This is an easy one to understand, right? One would do anything that they could to protect their child because life is so valuable. Again, the word beautiful isn't so much about beauty, although I'm sure Moses was a beautiful baby. All babies are beautiful. But more that there is something different about this kid. The book of Exodus, which has the most verses spilled on Moses, doesn't, doesn't articulate much about the parents. Outside of being from the tribe of Levi, their names are not even mentioned. Which, if you go with Mosaic authorship for the book of Exodus, doesn't that seem a little odd? I mean, wouldn't you at least include your parents' name? Talk about an ungrateful child. I'm joking. <laughs> but what we do have is this initial act of faith not being done by Moses. He doesn't even have his name yet. 
by his mom and dad who personally do the correct thing even in the midst of a pretty dismal environment. You have to imagine, because even though the text doesn't articulate it, Pharaoh would have set a pretty aggressive penalties for violating his edict. And in spite of that, they do the correct thing. And we often face that, right? What is the correct thing to do? By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, I don't know if you know the story, but Moses, before he was named, was born. His parents knew that they were supposed to kill him. They weren't going to do that. They took care of him for three months and then got to the point where you can't cover up a child anymore. But they didn't want to kill the child. And so the mom took Moses, doesn't have that name yet, down to the Nile, put him in basically a raft made out of bulrushes and pushed him out into the water. Hit him beside the side of the bank. Lack of clarity on that. What we do know is what happens next. Pharaoh's daughter comes to the river to bathe, to swim, cool off in the heat of the day. Discovers the child identifies the child correctly as an Israelite child and rescues the child and names the child Moses, which basically means, I drew you out of the water. Now, if you're going to be found, being found by Pharaoh's daughter might be the best person in the absolute world to make that discovery at this time. And then we have this view that the book of Moses, the books written by Moses, the the Torah, the Pentateuch, specifically the book of Exodus, does not give us. Again, like we encountered last week, the writer of Hebrews knows something that the author of the Torah does not, which is intriguing, right? He's named by Pharaoh's daughter, but there is something new. He rejects his adopted family. There's a level of detail given in Hebrews that we don't get in Exodus. We know he associated with his people, but the new is that he chooses to be mistreated. The wealth of Egypt is viewed as a sin. Think about this one, okay? Stephen divides, in Acts chapter 7, divides Moses' life into three 40-year segments, okay? First 40 years, he's in Pharaoh's house. Think about what we would do today if our guy was right next to the highest ruler in the land. One step away from the most powerful person in the world. Would we want to use that relationship? Would we say, look at what God has given us. This is incredible. Our guy, right next to the guy. We've got this made. Or would it be viewed as a disadvantage? It's it's right there in the story. Moses, according to Hebrews, says he rejects the power he would have had. And he embraces, check this out, 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. Wait a second. The reproach of Christ? I mean, aren't we at least a thousand years or a couple thousand years away from the birth of Jesus? What did Moses see? The Messiah, the coming one? Who will be greater? It's always amazing to me when someone can see further than the temporal. But isn't that what God permits all of us to do? Is it not both the challenge and the reward of faith? Possessing faith is is possessing the ability granted by God, I will give you that, to see beyond what is in front of us and see what will be, even if what will be is not totally clear, And if all that we possess of what will be is that what will be will be better if we follow God, is that not enough? If if all that we possess of what will be is that what will be will be better if we follow God, is that not enough? And in the midst of joy and in the midst of sorrow, are we not drawn to the reality that God is active in our lives? Moses makes the declaration, I will trust God. The invisible is more important than the visible. I will trust God. Integrity is more important than power. And I think that can be an incredibly difficult decision to embrace. And yet what he exchanged, the glory of Egypt and what that might have meant for himself probably would have gone better for him as an individual if he had just stayed close to Pharaoh. He let go of and be, became more, and realized more, and saved more people than if he had stayed. He let go of power, he let go of control in exchange for integrity. And like I said, that's a tough one. Man, do we like to control situations. Man, do we like to have power over people. Man, do we like to think we have power over people. You know, basic German shepherd, come, sit, stay. You can do it with a two-year-old. It gets harder with a four-year-old. Logarithmically harder with an eight-year-old. Exponentially, is exponentially more than logarithmically? I should have put exponentially first and then logarithmically, okay? You see where I'm going, right? We want to control. We want to have power. Moses says, I don't want power, I don't want control, I want integrity, I want faith, I want trust. And I find myself resonating with that. I I can't control you, 
I can't even control myself. I can attempt to influence, sure. I, I make no effort to control you. I have no desire to get into power. I'm not interested in power. And I do this imperfectly. But I think Moses saw something. It's ultimately the decision that Christ made, right? Hence the phrase, rejecting what the world offered for what God offered, the reproach of Christ. For me, there's a litmus test that I often check myself with. And the litmus test is this. If I have to become what I hate or detest to get what I think I want or what I think God wants, then I know I've crossed the line. It's why walking with God is so incredibly important. It's like why knowing what the Bible says is so incredibly important. It's why we push and push and push to the reality of what this word says. And so they left, verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible, seeing what can't be seen, right? By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. Check this one out. The biggest plague, the biggest plague was the death of the firstborn, which, which was exactly the same plague that Pharaoh ordered executed on the people of God. I mean, that should have been Moses' fate. The plague that was avoided by the sons of Israel's descendants because of blood on the door of the frame of their homes, the Passover, the shedding of blood, faith that this would work than faith to move. The exodus, can you imagine that? Getting that many people willing to kill a lamb at the same time. Spread the blood on doorposts and go. Can you imagine getting this done today? Okay, here's what we're going to do. No, I don't want to do that. Here's what we're going to do. I don't want to sacrifice my lamb. No, here's what we're going to do. No, I'm not. I get to exercise my own freedom. Here's what we're going to do in faith. No, I don't want to do that. I mean... Just to have everyone aligned is a miracle. And to be sure, there would be many that would in the future fail the test. Most would die in the desert. But they had the faith to leave. They had the faith to escape. That in that moment, led by Moses, who was led by God, they moved from something horrible to something unknown. At least for Moses, the ability to see that the invisible was more real than the visible. That God was greater than Pharaoh. You might say it's easier to move when you can't stay. Fair enough. You might also argue it's not a choice if it's your only option. Fair enough. But they still had to leave. The exodus, the exit, the, the exodus becomes a journey from the place of being a sojourner or a slave and moving to a place that God has promised. Faith to escape. Let's think about this, shall we? 
faith to escape. What is God asking us to leave in faith to escape from? What's the thing that we like least about ourselves? The behavior I find most challenging, the short of repetitive servitude to something that is temporal but not eternal. What is God asking us in faith to leave behind? What is God asking us in faith to see? I'm sorry, I can't not do this. My dear friends found out last night that their oldest daughter and their youngest daughter were killed in a horrible accident. Some of you know the story. What little of the story we know. And I will preserve their names for right now because they need William and Anna grew up with them. Well, and their daughter, older daughter, are the same age. Their youngest daughter is just a couple years younger than Anna. There's a thing that I discovered in climbing. There's always a hold. There's always a place to put your hand or your feet.
by faith. By faith, we do life. Please pray with me. Father, I come in the name of Jesus. And I pray for my friends. And I pray for your spirit's presence in a way I can't possibly imagine. And I pray for our needs in this room, whether we're in this room or whether we're at home. That your spirit will meet our needs as well. That by faith, we can reach out to something more secure than the temporal trappings of life and embrace what you provide. So we ask for that. For some of us, it's escaping the pain of the past. For some of us, it's escaping the pain of addiction. For some of us, it's escaping the pain of sorrow. Embrace us, O great God, through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.